0: I'm sure most of you are aware that today is Super Bowl Sunday, right? Super Bowl Sunday. The Bears aren't playing, so I could care less who wins, okay? I'm going to watch, but I don't have a horse in the race, so it really doesn't matter to me. But most of you can't see, but I know what's going on. In the front row right here is an orange cooler filled with Gatorade, okay? And you know how, like, at the end of the game, they dump? The Gatorade on the winning coach's head, well, I've been threatened, no, that was too strong of a word, I'll say promised, that if I preach a good sermon, they're going to come up behind me and dump a whole cooler of Gatorade on my head today, okay? So, as a result, I'm lowering the quality of my sermon down, okay? I would have given you probably a nine out of ten today, but instead it's going to be about a four, okay, because I want to stay dry I'm not gonna take that as a threat, I'm gonna take that as just good natured teasing, right? Okay, hopefully. Um, Have you ever heard of the Cajun Cliffhanger? You know what the Cajun Cliffhanger is? Cajun Cliffhanger is a ride. It was a ride at Great America. I don't know if they still have that ride or if it's been outlawed, but the Cajun Cliffhanger. I first experienced this, went on vacation with my family, it was right at the front of the park. It was the very first ride we got on. And if you're not familiar, the Cajun Cliffhanger, you walk into this, they, they funnel about 40, 50 people into this, it's like round shaped. It's like a room, it doesn't have a ceiling though. You can see the sky, but you put your back up against the wall. And so you're standing in a circle, everybody facing inward. You could see everybody around you, right? And, and then what happens is it starts to spin. And at first it's spinning slowly, but eventually it picks up speed to where it's spinning really, really fast to where the centrifugal force sucks you up against the wall and you can't move. And then once the centrifugal force has you plastered up against the wall, the floor drops out. And so your feet are no longer on the floor. You are just stuck against this wall. And then rather than like this, it rotates like this. And so you're spinning fast your head feels like it weighs 500 pounds, okay? And it's an incredible ride. And here's the deal. When I first got on it, there was an adrenaline rush and everybody's chit-chatting. There's a lot of excitement, right? And when it first starts, everyone's screaming and everyone's laughing, but there's a turning point. Okay, about 90 seconds into it, it, when you realize you've made the worst decision <laughs> of your life, okay? And it's not a ride, it's a torture chamber. (laughs) And that was the longest four minutes of my life. I thought I was gonna die. It was the worst. And I got off that ride and I was so sick, I could barely stand up. And mind you, that was the first ride of the day that I went on. So I was sick the rest of the day. I didn't go on one other ride the rest of the day. I didn't eat the rest of the day. It was Horrible. The, cliff, the Cajun cliffhanger was a nightmare. I'm still in therapy over going on the Cajun cliffhanger, all right? Started out fun, started out with a lot of promise. It ended really badly. I tell you that story because I think it illustrates well the role of sin in our life. You see, sin at first has an appeal, at first, it has some promise, right? some fun. But what happens real quickly is it turns into a lot of regret and it turns into a lot of pain. And what started out good ends really poorly. And what I so appreciate about God and what I so appreciate about the life that Jesus delivers to us is that Jesus takes the exact opposite approach that sin offers us. Whereas sin might start out initially as promising and fun, and an adrenaline rush, and then ends up really bad. Jesus promises the best for last, that as you walk with Christ, sweeter and sweeter as the years go by, right? And it only gets better, and it ends with eternity. It ends with heaven, and it's such a stark contrast. And the story we're looking at today illustrates that spiritual proof. We're looking at the very first miracle that Jesus ever performed. Uh, John in his gospel highlights seven miracles of Jesus. And today we're looking at the first. Now, something that's unique uh, about John in his gospel is that for him, a miracle was a sign. He called miracles signs. So why did he call miracles signs? Well, think about what a sign is. What does a sign do? This isn't a trick question. What does a sign do? A sign gives direction or needed information, right? That's what a sign does. For instance, when you came in the lobby this morning, there's that vertical banner up in the lobby where it points children's check in that way. Uh, Washrooms this way, worship this way. It, It tells you where to go. It gives you information. If you need to use the restroom sometime this morning, you approach and there's two doors and you're like, oh no, which one do I go in? Well, we solved your problem. We put signs on the door that give you needed information. Men, women, right? And you can make your choice. That's what signs do. Well, you see, miracles were signs. They gave you needed direction. They give you needed information. John saw them as like material witnesses to underlying spiritual truths. Now, let me parenthetically say something about miracles. Miracles, you need to have a high standard of what a miracle is. And I think that's biblical. Now, there's going to be some people who are not going to appreciate what I'm about to say, and you might even disagree with what I'm about to say, and that's, that's fine. You're entitled to your opinion. I'm entitled to God's, okay? So here it is, okay? <laughs> Here's what I want you to see. That a miracle is the uh, laws of nature being transcended. Oftentimes, I hear people talk about miracles, you know, a miracle a day keeps the devil away, stuff like that. And I hear of people like talking about the birth of a child as being a miracle. Or, the, you know, the view of the Grand Canyon or a beautiful sunset. No, look at, look at this miracle. Those aren't miracles. Those are just miracles. God's ordered world. That's how God has created things to happen. And they're beautiful, they're wonderful, they're great, they're awe-inspiring, but technically they're not miracles. Miracles are something that transcend the laws of nature. And here's the deal. Who established the laws of nature? Jesus Jesus is the author of science. He's the author of the laws of nature. And so Jesus and Jesus alone has the power to suspend laws that he put into place. That basic principles of how the universe operates, he can transcend them and do whatever he wants. So have a high standard for what you call a miracle. It has to be something that, that, that's not everyday, something that can't be explained other than something greater than the laws of nature taking over. Now, the purpose of signs, John makes clear, the purpose of signs is to inspire us to believe in Jesus. They are pointing to the fact of who Jesus is and why he came. And so, the purpose of signs was always to inspire belief. And in his um, uh, explanation of why he wrote the book, John makes it clear. Look at John 20, verse 30 and 31. He said, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. So in John, he records seven miracles, seven signs he highlights to prove certain things about Jesus. But he said there was tons of miracles besides the ones I wrote about. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you will have life by the power of his name. And so that's the purpose of miracles to inspire belief. Now, with that said, here's an absolute fact. Miracles don't always guarantee belief. We often think they do or they would, but they don't. That's been proven throughout history. In fact, here's what I wanna assert. I wanna tell you that if, like we were to advertise, Jesus was gonna be here on a Sunday morning. Next Sunday, Jesus was gonna be on this stage and he's gonna be preaching and he's gonna be doing miracles and we would pack this place out, right? You would do whatever it took to get your friends and relatives and everybody here. And you're like, man, if I can just get them here, I know they'd become a Christian. I just know they would believe in Jesus. Because man, if you were eyewitness to a miracle, how could you walk out and, be, and not be changed? I mean, you'd have to be a believer, right? But I'm telling you, based upon human nature, based upon what scripture says, that even if we packed out this place and Jesus himself stood here and performed miracle after miracle, the majority of people would walk out explaining it away or making up excuses for why it couldn't be true, or ascribing his power to the devil rather than to God, or something, some way to explain it. The Israelites did that. Throughout the Old Testament, God did miraculous things for his people, the Israelites, and unbelief was right around the corner every time, where you think, well, surely that would gain their attention. Surely now they'll be loyal. Surely now they'll be upright with God. But within days, They'd immediately be back to where they were in disobedience and unbelief, because miracles have never guaranteed belief. In fact, look what John said in, in chapter 12, verse 37. He said, But despite all the miraculous signs Jesus had done, most, not some of the people, most of the people still did not believe in him. And so that's human nature. We tend to be so cynical. We tend to be so skeptical to where even if before our eyes there was a bona fide miracle, the majority of people you know would let it roll right off their backs and it wouldn't change them or their view of Christ at all. But for some it does. And for those, that's what God has for them to believe. And so this Gospel of John series, it's about getting you to cross the line of faith, to embrace Christ and accept his forgiveness, his eternal life. But for those of you who are already followers of Christ, by learning about these miracles, that your faith would go deeper, that your faith would grow stronger as a result of what you learn. So that's what this is all about. I want to invite you now to please stand at the reading of God's word, and we're going to read about the very first miracle of Jesus. I'd invite you to follow along on the screens as I I read. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him they have no more wine. Dear woman, That's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby, there were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the wine, or the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said, and then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Father, for this very first miracle of your son and what it tells us about him. Father, we pray today that our hearts would be open to your truth And that, Father, though this morning we're not likely to witness a miracle, Father, we see this miracle, and it will inspire belief nevertheless. Lord, we we thank you, and we commit this time to you as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So this is a little family road trip. They went to a tiny little farm town about 10 miles north of Nazareth, a place called Cana. And undoubtedly, this was a relative or a close family friend of Mary. She was invited, her son was invited. Jesus probably said, Hey, could I bring my boys with me? They're like, Hey, sure, the more the merrier. So, Jesus and his disciples, along with Mary, were at this wedding, at this reception. Now, keep this in mind Jesus was just launching his public ministry, he had yet to teach in public. He had yet to perform any miracles. And so right at this point, he was still flying under the radar. His being there wouldn't have attracted any attention. They were just one of many wedding guests who were there. And he was there with his mom and with his ministry team, okay? So this was the launch of his public ministry, the first miracle, Now, let me give you some um, historical cultural background here to help you understand this story better. Because the problem, the issue is they ran out of wine at the reception. Now, we hear that and we're like, Okay, yeah, maybe a tiny bit embarrassing, but who cares? You'd give somebody your credit card and say, hey, could you make a run the binnies and you know, get us hooked up and get back here as soon as you can? Or you just get on the microphone and say, hey guys, sorry, we misunderstood how much wine we should have had. We ran out, we got ice water, sorry, but uh, we'll still have a good time and the thing would go on, okay? right? That's how we'd handle it now. But you've got to understand historically, culturally in this day, it couldn't have been a bigger disaster. This was a faux pas that wouldn't be forgiven. It would be considered like a slap in the face of every wedding guest by the party that put it on. And so it was like a super big deal. They would have been ostracized. They would have been unfriended. It would have been something that would have been catastrophic for the hosting family. Socially, it was a big deal, okay? And so It's been speculated that Mary, uh, that this was a close friend or a relative, because she tries getting involved. And so she goes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, my son, my loving son, they've run out of wine. Why did she go to him? It wasn't his wedding. He wasn't the caterer. Isn't that odd that he's just one of many guests, and Mary comes to him and says, hey, can you do something about this? Well, Bible scholars have speculated why Mary approached Jesus like this. Um, one, one speculation is that uh, she leaned on Jesus heavy. He, he was her resourceful, helpful son. Uh, you ever notice that the last time Joseph, Mary's husband, Jesus' earthly father, the last time he was mentioned was when Jesus was 12 years old in Luke chapter 2 when he was 12 years old. Now Jesus is 30, and in all of Jesus' public ministry, Mary's mentioned numerous times, but Joseph is conspicuously absent. And the assumption is that Joseph died sometime during Jesus' teenage years or when he was in his 20s. And so now is the oldest child, and he became the head of the household, and he became responsible for his mother. And so for years now, Mary had been leaning heavy upon her oldest son in the absence of her husband. And so she comes to him rather than her husband and says, Jesus, can you help out this family? Is there anything you can do here? That's a possibility why she approached him. But I have a different idea, and I think it's really the reason why she approached him. I think Mary approached Jesus in this situation because she was asking him to clear up her reputation. Think about it they were with family. They were with relatives. They were with close friends. And for 30 years now, Mary's reputation had been sullied by the virgin birth. How many of her friends and relatives do you think believed her? Folks, if if she had just a small handful of her closest family and friends who really believed her, I'd be surprised. I don't think anybody did. And she was always seen as that person who was indiscreet, who had sex before marriage and got caught. And I think Mary thought, Jesus, if you could do a miracle here, if you could do something spectacular here, it would prove to everybody that I wasn't lying. That you really are the Messiah, that you really are God, that the virgin birth really did happen. I think she was saying, son, can you help me clear up my reputation? And I think that's why she went to him. Jesus' response, he uses a phrase that was a common Aramaic response. And the gist of it was, woman, why are you bothering me? It was like, mom, I'm not the caterer. It's not our problem. My time has not yet come. Some versions of the Bible say my hour has not yet come. So, what does Jesus' response to Mary reveal to us? There's a couple of things I want you to see. The first is this. It reveals to us that his relationship with Mary was changing. See, he had been with her for 30 years. And now his Public ministry is starting. He wasn't going to be home anymore. He was going to be on the road for the next three years. He wouldn't be there to care for her, to comfort her, to provide for her. And he was beginning to distance himself from his family. He was like, mom, I can't help you out anymore. I'm not going to be here. And so his relationship with Mary was changing, and this was the signal of the start of the change of their relationship. The second thing that Jesus' response to Mary reveals is that now was not the ultimate time to prove himself. That's a Johnism. Only John uses the phrase, my hour has not yet come, or my time has not yet come. And that's what Jesus says to her, my time has not yet come. And ultimately, what he was saying is, it's not Ultimately, the time to prove myself as the Messiah. It's not the right timing for me to ultimately prove who I am. Interestingly, John, in two other occasions, uh, records the fact that authorities came to arrest Jesus, but they didn't. And the only explanation he gives for why he wasn't arrested is because uh, John says, because his hour had not yet come, or his time had not yet come. Uh, The timing wasn't right for him to be arrested and put on trial and suffer and die. When was Christ's hour? When was the ultimate time to prove himself? You know when it was? It was when Jesus was hanging on a cross, And he looked down at his mother, Mary. And he says, woman, behold your son. And I'm sure as they made eye contact, you say, mom, do you remember that wedding reception? Do you remember when you asked me to prove myself and I said I couldn't do it quite yet? I'm doing it now. My hour has come. And my hanging here is ultimate proof I am who I said I am. Now, here's the funny part. (laughs) The funny part is Jesus' response to her didn't dissuade her in the least bit. (laughs) So even after he said, mom, I'm not the caterer. It's, It's not my business. She still goes to the waiters and said, hey, whatever he tells you to do, do. In other words, she hadn't given up hope. My boy is gonna hook me up one way or the other. And you gotta think Jesus had to laugh at this point. He had to kind of shake his head and just like, mom, 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 you know what I mean? But she changed his mind. Jesus reconsidered and said, okay, why not? We'll give it a shot. We'll see what happens, okay? So he does his first miracle here. Only the waiters knew. Only the waiters knew. That's interesting. So what is this miracle teach us about Jesus? What does it reveal about Jesus? I have two observations here, okay, that I want to share with you. The first thing that this miracle teaches us is that Jesus loves people and loves being with them. It's that simple. Jesus was intentional about his first miracle to show that he loves people and loves being with him. Now, he was at the kickoff of his public ministry, and what kind of setting was he in? Was he at church? Was he in a lecture hall? Where was he at? He was at a party. He was with people where there was dancing and there was food and there was drink folks, he was intentional about where he did his first miracle. Now, wouldn't you think this would be the way we'd strategize? We think, okay, if Jesus is going to perform his first miracle, if I was Jesus, it would need to be in the big city. we would got to go to Jerusalem, and we would got to go like on the Sabbath when there's a ton of people, and we'd set up shop right outside the temple where everybody's coming and going, and then we'd do something spectacular. We want as much bang for our buck as possible to attract as much tension as possible. We want to start out with a bang. Okay, that's what you and I would probably strategize. But What does Jesus do? Tiny little farm town, Hicksville, at a specific wedding reception where there's just a limited number of people, and he didn't even do it in front of the crowd. He didn't get up on stage in front of all the guests and say, hey, watch this. Instead, he just dealt with the waiters, and the only ones who knew that it even happened at the time was the handful of waiters that were working the reception. But you see, this miracle wasn't to relieve human suffering like most of his miracles were. help the blind to see, the paralyzed to walk. This was about bringing joy to a newly married couple. This was about helping a family avoid social catastrophe. This was about his placing his blessing on the institution of marriage, even as his father had placed a blessing there. How much different Could Jesus be from John the Baptist? John the Baptist wouldn't have been caught dead at a wedding reception, at a party, for a couple of reasons. One, he would have been stinky from wearing clothes made out of camel hair. Secondly, he would have grossed out other guests eating locusts for his food, right? John the Baptist was 100% business. He was intense. He wouldn't have been caught in a party social situation in a million years. And here's the deal. The religious establishment of that day criticized John the Baptist and said, look how that fool acts. He must be demon possessed. But then Jesus said, and now I go to parties. I spend time with people. And the religious establishment says that I'm a glutton and a drunkard. And Jesus said, I can't please you people. You people are never happy. John goes one direction, one extreme, and he's demon-possessed. I go the other, and I'm a drunkard and a glutton. (laughs) Just can't win. And so I think Jesus was really intentional to show he was all about joy. He was all about celebration. He was all about blessing people with his presence. Even in a backwater little town like Cana. Jesus understood you can't love people if you're not with them. And so he was with people on a regular basis. In fact, Jesus was called a friend of sinners. He was criticized for being in so many social settings. It really reminds us of the approach as a church that we have to outreach of organic outreach. And something we always try training you towards and inspiring you towards is developing redemptive relationships with those in your world, whether in your neighborhood, in your family, in your workplace, in your school, that you're building relational bridges, gaining trust, gaining friendships, influencing people for God by spending time with them, and then praying for them, and then serving them. And that's the model Jesus gave to us. And so It's great for us to know Jesus loves people and enjoys being with them. And as his followers, we're to mimic that. I hope you're going to a Super Bowl party today. If not, crash one, okay? All right. I'm curious, how many of you are hosting? Raise your hand if you're hosting a Super Bowl party. Look around. Look who's hosting. Okay, everybody crash their party, okay? All right. On our website, we're going to put... Their address, okay, John and Ella's address. So if you don't have a party, go to theirs, all right? That's the last time you raise your hand in church, won't it? (laughs) All right, second truth about Jesus I want you to see is this, that Jesus has the power to bring about true transformation. That Jesus and Jesus alone has the power to bring about true change, In the scriptures, wine is often symbolic of joy or celebration. And I've read that there were three types of wine in the days of Jesus. The first type of wine was a wine that was pressed out and then it was mixed with water. And that was like your everyday drink. It was like about two thirds wine, one third water, and it was pressed out of the wine press. Second type of wine was wine that was pressed out, but it was straight up, it wasn't mixed with water. But there was a third type of wine where the grapes were so ripe and so juicy that even before the wine press was engaged, the the juice just dripped out from the weight of the grapes on top of the grapes, that before it was even pressed. And it was that juice that was fermented. It was that wine That was the highest quality wine. And John goes out of his way to record that that's the kind of wine Jesus created. The absolute top shelf best wine there was. And so knowing that, I want you to see that Jesus' wine stands in stark contrast to lifeless and joyless religion. They talk about the ceremonial uh, uh, water pots that were there, right? And they were Jewish ceremonies, but the thing is, it, it was going through the motions. And that ceremonial water was what could only deal with the external. It didn't change a person's heart. It didn't change a person's motives. And, and so the wine Jesus created stood in stark contrast with the water of ceremony, the fact that Jesus didn't turn water into better water. He didn't turn cheap wine into expensive wine. He turned water into the very best wine. And so Jesus is the master of quality. And the, the change he brings is top shelf. And it's complete. And it can't be any better. The second observation I want to see, not only is Jesus' wine in stark contrast to lifeless and joyless religion, but Jesus' wine stands in stark contrast to the ways of of the world. And again, we're back to the Cajun cliffhanger. That what starts out as such an adrenaline rush ends really poorly. Unfortunately, a lot of us have experiences like this with the bad decisions we've made in life, right? Can you think of bad decisions you've made in your life that it started out fun, started out promising, but it ended with a lot of guilt, it ended with a lot of shame, It ended with a lot of regret. It didn't turn out at all like you thought it would. That's the nature of sin. And yet what Christ promises is the exact opposite of the ways of the world, that he guarantees saving the best for last. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus saves the best for last. Hebrews 11, verse 25, there's an interesting phrase. Hebrews 11, verse 25 has a phrase, and the phrase is, the fleeting pleasures of sin. And it talks about the fact that Moses would not follow or succumb to the fleeting pleasures of sin. And that's recognizing that principle. Folks, do you understand if sin wasn't fun, it wouldn't be tempting? It wouldn't be tempting if there wasn't a promise to fulfillment or an adrenaline rush or fun. And so there's a sense in which sin is fun, but the fun lasts for just a moment. And it quickly turns sour while still in your mouth. And the regret that follows can be overwhelming. And the guilt and shame that follows can be overwhelming. And you see, that's the deception, that those few seconds of pleasure are going to be worth what follows. And it never is. It never, ever And that's why the fleeting pleasures of sin is a great phrase for us to keep in mind. And remember this, that the walk with God only gets better over the years. There's an old hymn, sweeter as the years go by. And that's the promise of following Jesus, is that it's only going to get richer, deeper, more fulfilling, and end in eternal life. And so friends, remember Jesus saves the best for last. That's his guarantee to those of us who trust in him. I'd encourage you to embrace Christ in every way you possibly can, to trust him, to know that he's the master of quality and that he always saves the best for last. That's his promise to you.